When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of the meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. We're all pretty familiar with uh, ritual in our society today. It takes place in a whole variety of different places. Uh, Weddings are a great place for ritual. The whole idea of giving away the bride, it's really just a a ritual that we're performing there. Or even wedding rings themselves, uh, they're really just symbols. It's really theatre that's taking place there. Uh, We saw another example of theatre fairly recently. You might remember, I don't know if you remember, we had a federal election just recently. Yes, well, when there's a federal election, oh, this is another another piece of theatre that we see with the Olympic Games and the open, and the torch opening, lighting the cauldron for the opening of the Olympic Games. Uh, but when a federal election is called, the Prime Minister drives to the home of the Governor-General to advise him that to dissolve the Parliament and call for a federal election. Now, when the Prime Minister goes there, I mean, let's face it, it's theatre, isn't it? I mean, he could have just picked up the phone, he could have just shot an SMS to the Governor-General, would have all been fine, he would have understood completely what was going on. And could you imagine what happened, what what would have happened if the Prime Minister had gone to the Governor-General's residence to call for this election, but the Governor-General wasn't there, he just popped out to get some milk, he should be back fairly soon if you'd like to wait. I mean, it's not going to happen, is it? Because it's all pre-arranged. It's theatre. But it's theatre for a reason, I suppose, isn't it? All of those things, it's because there is something significant happening behind this. The act itself of visiting the Governor-General, lighting the cauldron or slipping a wedding ring on someone's finger, that's not really the thing, is it? That just symbolises the thing that's really happening. It's theatre for a reason because important events are taking place. When there's a federal election, it's because the whole country is now going to get to vote. This little chat that he has with the Governor-General, while it may seem like theatre, there's a significant event that stands behind it. 
Now, we're starting today, today to look at uh, the, the, the middle section of the book of Leviticus, the very last part. We've said that the book of Leviticus is a tightly organised book. It deals with different sections in different places. So we started out looking at the end and the beginning of Leviticus where the rituals were described, uh, the sacrifices and the offerings that the people of Israel were supposed to make, grain offerings, burnt offerings, fellowship offerings and sin offerings. And then we looked at the priesthood in these middle chapters uh, where the priests are appointed and and called to live by a higher standard because of the role that they're going to have within Israel. Uh, Last week we looked at the section dealing with moral and physical purity, that God expected his people to be different and he expected them to be pure. Now, there's an element of theatre in the sacrificial system and What we're looking at today is where the whole community become involved in this. We're looking at Leviticus chapter 16 particularly, uh, what they call the Day of Atonement. But all of the sacrifices that were done in Israel, there was an element of theatre about them as well. So you didn't make your sacrifices in your own home. You didn't make your sacrifices and your offerings as some kind of private thing. It was all done in a very, very public way. Uh, When you saw your neighbour walking down the street with a goat or a lamb under his arm, heading towards the tabernacle, you knew there was something going on. You knew that he was going there for a reason. There had been something that had happened in his life that he now needed to go and make this sacrifice. And when people saw you walking down the street with your lamb under your arm, well, they knew there was something going on there as well. It was very, very public. But there was one day of the year when the whole of the nation of Israel were involved. And it's this Day of Atonement that we read about in chapter 16. This would have been one of the most significant days on the national calendar for the people of Israel. It was a national day of confession, owning up to your sin. Uh, This is the one time in the year when the priest... Uh, the people would go down and they'd gather around this tabernacle. This is what we understand the tabernacle would have looked like. The whole of Israel would have been there on the plain, gathered around this tabernacle for this day of sacrifice, this day of confessing their sin. And it's the one time in the year when the priest could move into that yellow area, that most holy place. There was a curtain that separated that section off from the rest of the tabernacle and there was only one day in the year when he could go in there and that was on this day of atonement. But can you imagine what it would have been like? Every person in Israel down there at the tabernacle Aaron, the high priest, and all of the other priests dressed in their full priestly attire. And the first thing that Adam does is he slaughters a bull and that's for his own sin and for the sin of the priests. Then he takes some blood and he places it on certain items within the tabernacle. And then there are these two goats. One of the goats is slaughtered as a sin offering for the people. You read that in chapter 16, verse 15. But the other goat is used in a more symbolic way. That was the one that we heard read out to us earlier. The sins of the people of Israel were symbolically placed on the head of this goat. The priest put his hands on the head and confessed the sins and the wickedness and the rebellion of the whole nation of Israel. They're put on this on this goat and then the goat is led away into the desert. Pick it up there if you've got your Bible open at Leviticus chapter 16 verse 21. 
He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. Now, can you try and picture what it would have been like to have been there, to watch all of this happening? What you'd see, the sounds that you'd hear, animals being slaughtered, this goat being led off. I can only imagine that it's taking place in complete silence, that everyone watches as this goat is led out of the tabernacle and then taken off into the desert. And as you stood there, you knew that all of this happened because of you, because of your sins, because of your wickedness, because of your rebellion. And as you stood there, if you stopped to think about it for just a minute, you'd know you were going to be back there again next year to do it all over again. For hundreds of years, these rituals were repeated. Sin was symbolically dealt with. And all this was not just a reminder that you were sinful, but it was a really powerful reminder that God decides how sin will be dealt with. God is the one who has been sinned against and God decides how it is that people will be forgiven. That's what Israel are reminded of in these ceremonies and something that we need to keep remembering as well. See, it's not up to us to determine the course of forgiveness. It's not up to us to decide what God should or shouldn't accept on our behalf in order for us to be forgiven. We don't get to decide what sacrifice we give. We don't get to decide what it is that will appease God. We don't get to decide what it is that makes us right with God. I think there are plenty of people in our society today who are probably willing to acknowledge that in the big scheme of things, they're not perfect, that they've actually done things that we might even call sinful. They know that their lives aren't ideal. They know that they've done things that they should probably be ashamed of. But a lot of people think that they can figure out themselves how to make it right, They have this idea that uh, there's a kind of debt that needs to be paid and a little bit of personal effort and sacrifice on their part. Do a few things, bit of community service, a little bit of money to the salvos, help out a neighbour. God will surely know that I'm sorry. God will be willing to forgive me. They think they can kind of make a deal with God where they can outweigh the bad things that they've done by doing a couple of good things in the community. Now, you may think I'm exaggerating, but I reckon that's a fairly common idea that people have. It's just your run-of-the-mill good works mentality, isn't it? But if I do enough good things, surely that's got to balance out any bad things that I've done. But Leviticus says it doesn't work that way. You don't get to decide what will appease God. You don't get to decide what will make you right with God. We're talking about the God and creator of the universe here. We're not talking about the bloke who lives three doors down. You don't get to determine what will make things right. And the book of Leviticus makes that abundantly clear. But it also makes abundantly clear that God is willing to forgive. 
He's not some petty, spiteful deity who sits there just trying to keep a list of the things that you've done wrong and he's never going to forgive you for them. No, God is overwhelmingly willing to forgive. In the pages of the New Testament, we're told that Leviticus was just a shadow of what it was that God really had in store. Leviticus was really just theatre, symbolism, pointing towards the real thing that was going to happen. So it's not through the blood of bulls and goats that sin is dealt with. It's through the sacrifice of Jesus. Our forgiveness comes through his blood being shed, through his sacrifice being made. In Leviticus, we're told that the high priest could only go into that most holy place on one day of the year, that that day of atonement. Well, in the book of Hebrews, the writer says that those who have their trust in Jesus, they have the confidence to be able to walk into that most holy place. He picks up all of this Leviticus language. Look at what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We don't have to repeat the theatre of Leviticus. It's been done in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, it actually says that that curtain in the temple was torn in two, that the barrier that stood between man and God has now been completely removed through the death of Jesus. It's no longer the high priest on only one day of the year who can go in there. Jesus has made it possible for us, for you and for me to enter into that holy place. We can draw near to God through prayer. We can pray by saying, our Father in heaven. We can draw near to God and know that he will hear us. And the day will come when we will stand before God. And the writer of Hebrews says that we can do that with confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus. If you've got your Bible there, can I flip you over to one other passage? Chapter 25 in Leviticus. It's one of those little kind of strange, obscure things that doesn't get talked about very often, but it's one of those delightful parts of the Bible that gives us this clear insight into the character of God. It's called the Year of Jubilee. Chapter 25, starting there at verse number 8. Here's this incredible display of God's character and God's grace being written into the law that the people of Israel have. The year of Jubilee, it was connected to the Day of Atonement. It was celebrated on the Day of Atonement. Every 50 years, the people of Israel were to celebrate this year of Jubilee. On the Day of Atonement, on the 50th year, all debts were cancelled. All slaves were set free. All property is returned to its original owner. If you bought some land, it was going to be returned to whoever you bought it from in that year of Jubilee. So that was actually taken into the calculation. If the year of Jubilee is only three years away, well, the price that you'll pay for the land will be considerably less because it will be returned to its original owner. Could you imagine what that would be like? Credit cards, cut in half, mortgages, wiped. 
slaves set free. If someone owes you money or you owe someone money, well, the debt's cancelled in that year of Jubilee. This is what it says at the beginning of the passage. Count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then, and try and picture this, have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Could you imagine what it would be like to hear that trumpet? Here was a chance for God's people to reflect on God's character in their own lives and in their actions. Here is a chance for God's people to demonstrate God's character in their lives. Just as God has been gracious to them, they are now going to show grace to others. Just as God has been generous with them, they are now going to be generous with others. Just as God was willing to forgive his people, his people need to reflect that forgiveness to each other. The year of Jubilee was a powerful reminder of just how gracious God was. First of all, in saving them, but secondly, in allowing them to live in the land. Uh, Jump down to verse 23 of chapter 25 and listen to what God says about the year of Jubilee. I think I've got it up on the screen here as well. The land must not be sold permanently. Why? Because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. See, this whole thing with owning the land and then having to give it back to the person that you bought it from, it's a reminder that God's the one who owns all this land. Every 50 years, this would happen. And the reason for 50 years, well, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Though the passage doesn't say it. It means that once in your lifetime, you will get to experience this year of Jubilee. Once in your lifetime, your debts will be cancelled. Once in your lifetime, there is a chance for the slate to be wiped clean. Once in your lifetime, there is a chance for a fresh beginning. One of the really sad things is, to the best of our knowledge, they never celebrated a year of Jubilee. Or if they did, we don't know anything about it. We certainly don't read about it in any of the other historical books in the pages of the Old Testament. It was going to be another 40 years before they even moved into the land. But we don't have any record of a a year of Jubilee ever being celebrated. It's there in Leviticus and it's a wonderful ideal, isn't it? This glimpse into God's character and not just glimpse into God's character, it's God's character written into law. But in a way, the trumpet did sound eventually, many years later. This is what we read in Luke's Gospel. He, that is Jesus, went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom And he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus came to bring that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the slate to be wiped clean. Jesus came to bring that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a fresh start with God. That's the message of the gospel. That's the great news that we have to share with others, that it is possible to be made right with God, that it is possible to be forgiven that it is possible to be restored to a relationship with God and not just a relationship, but to be able to stand before God with confidence because of what he has done for us through his son. But what God expects from us as his people is to live out that generosity, that forgiveness, that grace. God says, be holy because I'm holy. God says, show forgiveness because I've shown you forgiveness. God says, be generous because I have shown you my generosity in Jesus.